Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. KP Ready, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey there, good to see you. It's great to have you here. This is this is going to be uh, an interesting conversation for me. This is a topic that I'm really interested in. I love business and startups and the VC world and all of the stuff that goes along with it. I've been following that that um, sort of that environment for a long time. Uh, since college, I've always been interested in startups and how they work. Um, today, actually, my, I didn't even mention this before we started here, but my son just launched a startup. Um, and so he just, he just graduated from Syracuse University. And he and a friend of his have, have launched a new company there in New York City and doing the whole venture capital thing. And so no uh, better, no better time. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting to watch him grow. And so it, it'll be really interesting to have this conversation as well to share what venture capital is and how it works and sort of how architects might uh, be able to benefit from it. So um, yeah, for sure. looking forward to that. Let me introduce you to anybody who may not know who you are. Uh, KP Reddy is the founder and CEO of Shadow Ventures, a seed stage technology investment firm. He's a globally recognized authority in AEC environments, AI, robotics, automation, mobile applications, and cloud computing. Uh, KP, his background is civil engineering, and he wrote the textbook on BIM with his book, BIM for Building Owners and Developers. Uh, KP formerly ran Enterprise Transformation at Gary Technologies, which exited to Trimble. 
and was the general manager at uh, ATDC at uh, Georgia Tech, one of the oldest technology incubators in the country. And when I reached out to my network for recommendations on who to talk to uh, about venture capital in this environment, this AEC industry that we're in, uh, KP's name was just kept coming back. I reached out to my network and they said, talk to KP. Uh, and so I'm really excited about this. KP has, has grown and exited three technology companies. So if you're an entrepreneur architect and you're interested in learning about how to grow and fund a successful tech company in this uh, AEC, AEC environment, uh, there may be nobody better to talk to than KP Ready. So I'm really interested in this. Uh, great to have you here, KP. Thanks. No, that's... Uh... I'm glad there's interest, right? I always, always wonder, like, I, I love what I do and I get excited about it. And uh, sometimes I wonder whether other people in the industry are excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, me for one, I am interested. So it's, uh, I know that there's, there is a, uh, there is a small, but very, very enthusiastic community of uh, small firm architects. Uh, well, actually it's a very large community today, but, but mm -hmm. a small segment of that larger community are very interested in this topic specifically. They have lots of great ideas, but they have no idea what to do with mm -hmm. them. Yep. Um, architects are creative problem solvers. And so mm -hmm. that's what business is all about. Before we jump into that conversation, because I want to sort of talk about the basics and the process and all of that, but I want to know more about you first. Um, sure. KP, w w what inspired you to do what you do? Um, maybe who or what inspired you to yeah. do what you do? Share that. Yeah, so, so the running joke is I was born this way. Um, so my mom was a computer programmer and my dad was a civil engineer. All right. So perfect combination. Literally like you know, genetically bred for this business, so to speak. Um, but really where it started was my dad had his own firm. Um, and when I was 13, he bought a, a computer and a professor friend of his sent him a floppy disk with some structural engineering analysis software. And he looked at me and he's like, make this thing work. Like, I don't know, like unbox it, figure it out, make it work. And back then software, there was no such thing as a UI, right? UI was command line yep. and it was just very clunky. So I built an interface for it to make it simple for anyone to use. So I, how did how did you know how to do that? I just taught myself and I had my just, mom around. And you were just interested in yeah, so just, you know, and, and back then you did have, you know, bulletin board communities mm -hmm. and you had different ways to learn, but mostly books and trial and error and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so just trial and error, built an interface for it. So that was like my first product, so to speak. And I had to support it because my dad had other engineers that had never seen a computer in their life kind of thing. And yeah. um, so kind of learned that way. And then by the time I got to Georgia Tech, I, um, I kind of decided like, well, I already had a program. Why would I get a computer science degree? Um, like you don't need a degree to program, but you kind of need a degree to like design buildings. So I'm going to go into civil engineering. So I went to Georgia Tech, did civil engineering. The, the weird serendipity that happened was the Georgia Tech civil engineering program was actually the first school to have classes on the internet. 1991. Wow. And very, very early. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like the technician in the computer lab on campus. And my advisor said, Hey, there's this thing called the internet. I need you to help put class notes and everything in this thing called HTML. And we're using a mosaic browser and all this stuff. And little did I know, right? Little did I know. I was like, I was doing what my advisor told me to do. Yeah. 
Um, so that was kind of the beginning of it, right? And graduated, went into traditional civil engineering. The difference being I really struggled with the mo upward mobility as a young engineer. Like, how do I, I, I mean, I graduated, I was making 26,000 a year. And I said, this is dumb. Like I went to all this college and like, why, like, how do I make more money? Right. Yeah. Once my boss, he's like, well, you know, there's two ways to make money in our business. You know, you can be the guy that brings in business. You can be the engineer that's known for bringing in business, or you can be the engineer that's highly specialized and, you know, top in the world. And I was like, well, I think I'm pretty good, but it, you know, at, at 23, thinking about being the best engineer of the world is like, you know, that's, that's a 40 year journey, like not excited about that. So I decided to be good at bringing in business and I was good at that. And I figured out how to implement technology. In our firm, we had one computer that everybody shared. And I started doing instrumentation in the field. I started using building software to do hydrology and like just all this stuff. I was like, I don't want to bill hours. I was like anti-billing hours. Yeah. Um, and I just felt it was like really personal and weird. Like you're tracking my hours and you're selling my time. I don't like it. Like I, I just I was just very averse to it. So I did that for a few years and left um, and started a startup to do construction management on the web. So 1997, I've got a web-based platform for you to manage all your construction projects. Um, I started the company with a cash advance on my Discover cards of about 60,000, borrowed a couple bucks from my mom. Um, but other than that, it was like 60 grand in the bank. So that's all, that's all the money I had to get going. Um, and quickly the contractor said, internet, that's a fad. It's for playing games. Right. Yep. It's dumb. Right. Um, the architects were saying the same thing in the late nineties. Right. And yep. if you think about back then you had the Panasonic tough book, it was like $7,000. Like yeah. if I can't use this computer in the, if I can't use the internet in the field, it was just very, very tough. So I started to run out of money and I was just super fortunate. Um, ran to some folks in the telecom space and they said, oh, construction management's like project management. Telecom had just been deregulated. We need to deploy switch gears and do all these projects. We want to use your software. Um, so next thing you know, MCI, WorldCom, Sprint, Nextel, they're all using my software. All the companies that knew what was coming down the line. And right. Yeah. Um, so next, you know, we grew from two guys to 1200 people and went public. And how long did that take to go from that initial conversation to going public? Three years. That must've been an exciting three years. It was insane. Um, it was insane because one, it was a different, you know, it was the dot-com era. There was a lot yep. of that. Right. There was a lot of, um, you know, young founder, I was 28 years old. It's funny. My kids always ask me like that, like, why do you have so many friends in Atlanta that are in, that are rap artists? Like you don't even listen to rap music. <laughs> I'm like, because we were all dumb, young and rich at the same time. Now we're just like, Oh, he was complaining about our kids now. But at the time, like <laughs> we were the guys running around and doing stupid stuff and buying yeah. the cars and all that. So that's our only intersection. But um, yeah, so it was just, it was fantastic. And then, you know, decided, you know, I was kind of done. 9-11 happened. It was, it's tough running a public company. I, I really, I think most founders that say they want to IPO and run a public company really don't know what they're signing up for. Um, I spent, I remember looking back, it was like six months. 
had not talked to a single customer and I had not talked to a single employee that was not in HR and accounting. And I was like, this is not what I like want to do, right? This is yeah. not being on it, but you know, it's good for some people, not for me. Yeah. Um, so I left and then took like two years off and I had some friends that were like, oh, you need to check out this company, Revit Technology Corp. It's really cool. Um, you should invest. And I was like, yeah, I want to invest and like had a meeting and then went on vacation for four weeks. <laughs> Came back and they were sold to Autodesk. Oh, missed missed the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And so I looked at that and I was like, you know, these are the same people that said the internet was a fad. And I looked at BIM. I'm like, this is very complicated. And it can become even more complicated if you want to make it more. I don't see it happening overnight. I think there's something there. So I started a, a BIM consultancy. Then we started building some products around BIM. Um, and it was very focused through my book. I talked to so many owners and developers about BIM and they were just so far removed from BIM adoption. They're like, oh, I don't care what my architect uses. I don't care what they draw in. That's not my problem, right? And, but we started to see interest. And so I wrote a book and through that, we built a firm and ended up selling that in 09 to a group in the Bay Area and then commuted to the Bay Area for three years. And that's when I started getting exposed to, I would say predominantly the Indian community in Silicon Valley. So what you started finding was in Silicon Valley back, you know, back 80s and 90s, um, the Indian community was really the CTO, the VP of engineering. Mm -hmm. They right. were rarely the CEO. And so I started working with this community, you know, mostly Indian origin uh, in the Valley that were, had been the CTOs of Sun Microsystems or whatever. And they were kind of saying like, hey, you know, I'm ready to be CEO this time around. I don't need that guy. I can, I can be a CEO. So yeah. built a great network there. Um, did that for about three years. And you commuted from from, from Atlanta. From Atlanta. And then uh, and then shortly after that, some investors that were investing in Frank Geary's Geary Technologies called and said, "Hey, we need somebody that's actually built a product to kind of go help out." And so I, I, I commuted to uh, Santa Monica for about a year. And that was great. Um, so did that, and then kind of took some time off. I was kind of like done. I, you know, I was financially in a place where I was comfortable, um, intellectually in a place where I didn't really want to work. I uh, went through a divorce and kind of decided like I'd been traveling all this time. And the one thing I wasn't feeling at the bucket, I didn't feel like I was feeling was being a great dad. Mm -hmm. So I took two years off and was like, I'm going to be the best dad ever. And I was like at every PTA meeting, I was at every carpool coaching the soccer. And I was my kids will tell you like, dad, that was the worst time of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> too much, too, too, too much, much dad. super dad. Yeah. Super dad, like cooking fresh meals and breakfast and trying to get them to be vegetarian, like all kinds yeah. of stuff. So yeah. But in um, five years from now, cause they're in, you know, you said 19, 20, somewhere around there, right? Yeah. Um, about four or five years from now, they're going to remember that time and they'll remember it as the best time of their lives for sure. They definitely do now. They, yeah. now they kind of poke fun. Like they get yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but they poke fun. Like, dad, you were just getting to be such a weird, like, <laughs> you know, you're growing your own plants and like, just, you know, I, I became like hyper hippie at that moment. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Um, but so, you know, and then, you know, Georgia tech called and said, Hey, we want you to kind of volunteer at our incubator. And I was like, well, you know, I can volunteer. That sounds like something I can do between carpools. Right. Yeah. Um, so did that. And then through a series of events, they said, Hey, we want to give you a full-time job. And I was like, okay, great. Cause you know, paying for your own healthcare is really painful. 
Um, so I was, oh, that's fine. And then through another series of events, they put me in charge. And when they put me in charge, it was like a massive catalyst for me to kind of get off the bench and like, okay, there's stuff to be done here. There's things I can do. I can actually add a lot of value. Um, but it, it's also where I decided I don't want to start another startup. Like I'm, I'm kind of done with that. I want to yeah. be more of a investor and have a portfolio. Uh, about that time I started getting phone calls. So one of the first phone calls I got was from Thornton Tomasetti and they said, look, we're trying to figure out innovation. And Tom Scarangello, um, who I think is chairman now of Thornton Tomasetti, but was CEO for a long time. He said, look, if, if we don't disrupt ourselves, somebody will. Right. hundred percent. And I want you to be that optionality of disrupting us. So can you help us? And so help them build out like what um, became their, you know, their incubator program, um, spun out six companies for them. Um, two have done fantastically well, you know, pays better than structural engineering, so to speak. Um, and so a lot of success there. And then I think other people were saying, Hey, can you help us? Can you help us? Can you do this? Can you do that? And we did. And I did a little bit of that, but what I realized was like selling, I was back to like my original thought of like when I was in engineering, like selling my time. Right just felt pointless. It just felt really pointless. Like I only know how, you know, and what if I don't want to, what if I don't want to spend my time? Right. When do I get a break? Um, so I, so kind of the conversation led to, like, I think I just want to start investing. So if you guys want to write checks, invest in my fund, let's go do this. And so then next knows Thornton Tomasetti and JB and B and Siska Hennessy and Hensel Phelps and Whiting Turner, like just boom, boom, boom. They all just said, yes, we love what you're doing. And we, we want to back you. Um, and then a bunch of real estate developers kind of got behind us. And so we're off to the races. Um, and I think that what we've really focused on is seed stage, because we think seed stage is where you can have the maximum impact, where the know-how of building a company is really relevant. Now, I can't help a company that's doing $100 million in revenue. I mean, I can. It's just not that interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so when I started the firm, I kind of assembled a team that like my CTO, Matt, was the part of the initial team over at Constructware. I'd known him since college, since he was in college, not since I was in college. Known him for 15 years. Like, Matt, like, stop doing that. Come come join the team. Uh, Nick Durham, who I'd met through Built Worlds, through their programs. He was running Built Worlds. I was like, Nick, like, do you really want to do events? Like, come on, let's go do stuff. And so Nick quit his job and came and worked for us. Manov worked at one of our startups. Um, he was like, actually worked at two of my startups. Now that I think about it, one of them was a robotics one. And so I was like, Hey, do you want to keep being a COO or you want to kind of get scale? So, and then Ian, who's on our team, I've known since he was in college, he was pitching me his startup when he was in college. I was like, come on. Like, so it's, it's really interesting. Our team very much, our firm culture is almost like a family business. Both my kids work at the firm. They always have. Um, they know everything that's going on. So we really operate like a family business, which is kind of not really that popular these days. You know, everybody's trying to scale and be big and all that. Like, oh, we're just going to be, we're going to be deep and we're going to be, you know, friends and enjoy each other's company and, and have fun doing work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. sounds like a great, a great plan. <laughs> yeah. So can you, can you, so, so Shadow is a venture capital company, right? So you invest in ideas, right? That's that mm -hmm. seed means it's very early, right? Somebody has mm -hmm. an idea, they need some money to develop that idea into a company, 
right? That's how that works. Yep. Can you talk about that a little bit and sort of describe the process of somebody has an idea? Let's say we're, we're talking to architects here. Mm -hmm. So let's say there's an architect out there. I got this great idea, too big for me to develop it into something mm -hmm. myself. Right. How do I take it to that first step? Yeah. So I think um, the biggest disservice that's been done has been people watch the creation of Shark Tank and people watching Shark Tank. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, inspiring but not realistic. Sort of the no, HGTV of venture capital, right? right for it's, architects, it's really, right? It's 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 for entertainment. I, I happen to know some of the guys there, and it's like, by the way, they don't invest in half the stuff they say they invest in, right? And it's just not. But I, I think the the first thing people have to determine about their idea is, you know, how big is it. Right. How big of an idea is it? And and usually the the size of the idea is related to the size of the problem. Right. And unfortunately, people tend to solve problem have an idea to solve a problem that's just too small. Yeah. So there's a sizing thing. Then there's like a depth of impact. Like, is it a priority? You know, and that's one of those things that you have to go to your customer discovery and really do your homework on. So the biggest thing I see at an idea stage is we're really evaluating the journey of the entrepreneur and their judgment and how are they thinking about things? And have, de have they done all the work that can be done without needing money? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of people, I would say 80% people, they have an idea. The only effort they've put in has been in five slides. Here's the five slides that I'm pitching you with. And I'm like, so how many people have you talked to? Oh, well, you know, I know that, and this is, I would say this is a little bit problematic in our industry. Well, I know I've been in architecture for 20 years. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm like, wrong answer. Right. And when I tell them, you need to go talk to at least 100 people and interrogate them, right? And ha at that 100 people, 90 of them are going to tell you it's a dumb idea. And you're going to dig into why. You're not going to stop it. It's a dumb idea. You're going to be like, why? And really those, those 100 interviews I've never seen an idea that starts before the 100 interviews and is the same idea at the end of 100 interviews. Right, right. right? It evolves. Right. If, if, if it is, like if someone says, I did 100 interviews and I validated my initial idea, then you're, I'm out, right? That shows a lack of adapt adaptability and a, an inability to listen, right? Yeah. Um, and what you did is you just coached people to your answer, right? So, um, So you have to be... I have this blog post I wrote. Um, it's kind of like everything you need to know about customer discovery can be learned by binge watching Law and Order, right? Because when you're interrogating, that's why I call it a, a potential customer. Yeah. If if you lead the witness, right? All the things, you know, what are they doing? They put them in the box, and they're trying to trip them up on facts to prove their guilt. Yeah. That's all they're doing, right? So you have to kind of have that same attitude when you're interrogating a market. You want to trip them up into getting the truth. Um, if I ask you like, hey, would you like to be 30% more profitable? I mean, that's a dumb question to ask anybody. Of right. course, right. the Who's answer is say yes. No. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is yes, right? Yeah. I'm leading the witness. 100% of people said yes. Right. I'm leading the witness, right? <laughs> but if I can dig into a conversation and trip you up, you know, then all of a sudden I start to get to the truth. Um, so sometimes my homework, especially with uh, some of the younger crowd, like, have you watched Law and Order? Like, what's that? I'm like, okay. <laughs> TV? What's TV? TV, what's that? 
<laughs> I think my mom had one of those. Like Sam Watterson. Like, who? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the guy from Blackish. Okay, that guy got it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's what we're trying to look for. And then really, there's certain companies, certain businesses that are venture fundable, and there's certain businesses that are not. Yeah. Architecture. Yeah. Go ahead. So the, the first decisioning, right, is product or service. If it is a service company, it is not venture fund. Architecture firms are not venture. Um, and the reason being for the amount of equity you give up and the, you know, we're going to take 10, 20% of your company. So if it's not a big enough idea that scales really well, there's, there's no point, right? And most services companies have that attribute. To start an architecture firm, you need know-how, license, and a client. Right. Yeah. You don't really need much more, especially these days, right? It's not like you have to go buy a $10,000 CAD machine and drafting rooms. Um, I've seen some great, some firms like three-person firms, all three partners use Revit. They have no technicians. They have no accounting. They're doing fantastic. They have customers, right? They're doing car dealerships if they're yeah. interested in that. But yeah, they're, they're making a good living. They didn't need out any backing, right? So- Generally speaking, services businesses are not venture fundable. And, and I would say that is a broad understanding. That's that's a broad conclusion. Sure. Yep. The um what I would say is after that, then there's some things that I believe in <laughs> that maybe other people don't agree with. I don't believe marketplaces and tech-enabled services companies are really venture fundable anymore. And when people want to argue about marketplaces, they're like, well, eBay was very successful. Angie's List was very successful. And I was like, okay, those are old, right? Setting up a website these days is not, it's not hard, right? They were doing that when it was hard. Yeah, right. There's, there's no friction now. And I was like, let's take a, a more recent example of a marketplace. Uber, they don't know how to make a profit. They've raised billions of dollars, high scale. We all have them on our phone. In fact, all of our rides have been subsidized by venture capital, right? Because we're like, oh my God, I can drive across town and ride across town for $5. Well, we all know it didn't cost $5. Somebody paid the actual cost of it. The VCs did. And now the public markets do, right? So those aren't successes because they can't make money. They can't ever make money. Um, and so we're kind of anti-marketplaces. And then tech-enabled services, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, um, like we see this in our world, right? Like with these uh, like animation studios, like, oh, I want to take my BIM, I want to take my Revit model and turn it into an animation and I'm going to send it offshore and they're going to use some technology, but it's really people behind the scenes doing the work. Right. Um, we don't really think those are really investable for venture. Right. And when you say that, because you, you're sort of checking off all the boxes of things that really can't be, that are not venture backable, mm -hmm. right? And when you say that, that's that's about scale, right? It's about how much are we going to get back for the effort and, and time and money that we're going to put in to these companies. And the, right. and the things that you're going through are are great, potentially great businesses, potentially million multi million dollar companies, but they're not billion dollar companies, right? They're right. not they're not enough there at the other end for them to be worth the effort, uh, exactly. or to take your money or divert your money from another type of company to this type of company uh, because, you know, it, it. Absolutely. So you have to think about, and you say, you have to say motives matter, right? 
So if you're going to convince me and my team, what's our motive? How do we get paid? Right? It's not our money. It's our investors' money. Yeah. And we get what they call carried interest. So what that means is if you give me a dollar and I turn it into 10, I or let's, let's say simple math, you give me a dollar, I turn it into 11, I've made you $10. Right. I get 20% of that. That's what my cut is as a venture capitalist, right? Um, so then you start thinking, if you do that math and I, you say, well, in three years, I need to make X million, right? So how does your company have to scale and be worth a lot in three to five years? It's got to be worth a lot. And unfortunately, like services businesses are typically based on get more customers, hire two more people, get more customers, hire two more. Like it's just the cadence is very, very slow. And yep. if you look at it, a lot of it's driven by margin. If you look at most tech companies, margins are 60 to 90 percent. Right. I mean, right. it's, it's a right. different game. It's a different yeah, sport. Exactly. That, that's <laughs> that's unheard of in a service company. It's impossible. Right. So that's why you see most services companies tend to be lifestyle businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's interesting if you know you track some of the public companies in our space. I mean, you're like, wow, they don't make any money. Like they just they just churn through this machine. Right. And especially in services, which I think is really relevant to kind of the, the listeners is if you look at most services businesses, your IP walks out the door every day and you're really a labor arbitrage. That's really what it is. So how do you drive, you know, a hundred million dollar business with two people, right? You can't in architecture, you can't in engineering. And, and I think a lot of, a lot of my team, um, we actually have this advisory business. We have our investing operations and we have an advisory business that we advise very large corporates on innovation and investing and due diligence. Um, because they've asked, they asked for our help. Um, my team even says like, God, you're so averse to timekeeping and the idea of a billable hour. I'm like, Nope, we do everything fixed fee and we align our interests with the customer. And, and, and we have to ask our customers, like, what does success look like and, and put an economic value of what success. Right. So let's say the architect that we're talking about has this idea has checked those boxes that it's not those things that you just described. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a product, mm-hmm. right? So it's a tech-based product. Um, and they've gone out and they've talked to 100 people. And the product, mm-hmm. the idea has evolved. And now it's mm-hmm. a different, different idea, okay. different product. What's the next step? They come back to you and say, hey, I did those 100. You told, I came to you. You told me to go do 100. Yep. I went and did 100. What do I do now? So then we're going to like look at the team, right? And what, one of the things that's been very concerning is you see subject matter experts, right? I'm an architect, I have this idea, I understand the market, and now I'm gonna offshore my product development. I'm gonna outsource it, right? And that is an automatic no from us. One, um, having run offshore entities and knowing how that world works, the fact that once a week I get a, a contract programmer that didn't get paid by somebody wanting to sell me their code, <laughs> or a penny. Right. Yeah. Because like, because the customer didn't pay them, it's their code, right? The customer no longer has rights to the code. That's a once a week thing. So know that when you outsource, who knows where it's going, right? Yeah. Uh, not that, in, not if, that if you have a person in house. So what we really want to see in those early days is a technical founder, right? So, so somebody who knows what they're doing is part of the team is, is part owner is ready. To part play. owner. Right. Probably equal ownership as the founder. So really a co-founder is on the keyboard writing code. Right. We just think that is just, we've seen zero ways 
to get around that. And so a lot of times the, the, the subject matter founder says like, well, you know, I need money to get that person. So I explained to him, like, if you can't sell a co-founder on your idea to give up their day job and do those things, then you're never going to raise venture capital. Right. Because if you can't, you can't convince somebody to sign on and be a partner in this idea with, with the same vision and ex ex uh, enthusiasm that you have, then you're never going to be able to convince somebody to help fund it. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out our financials on our own is not one of those things. Luckily, we have FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business from building and tracking invoices, to managing online payments, to organizing expenses, and automates them with features like the digital bills and a receipt scanner, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. It's also super easy to get up and running. And the award-winning FreshBooks support team, they are always available to answer any questions along the way. Compare that to some of the other financial management tools out there. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, AKA CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by ArtCat. Listen and subscribe right now at artcat.com slash podcast. That's rcat.com slash podcast, A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast. Detailed. Every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. And so what we always say is like, that's your first hurdle. Go find a technical co-founder. Go convince a technical phone. I mean, even if it's not quit their job day one, it's, oh, I'll give you 20, 30 hours a week on the side, nights and weekend, um, to help you out and start building stuff and doing stuff. Yeah. And then we, we want to see that um, that chemistry, right? Like I kind of gave the origin story of myself and my team, like, hey, I pulled up. Like, yeah. it's because not, you know, I don't, I don't believe like talent is good or bad. I think it's just more understanding strengths and weaknesses and how people like the chemistry of a team, right? 
So a lot of really good startups go through two or three technical founders. Turns out like we didn't get along. Turns out he said he was really good at X, Y, and Z. Turns out he's not, right? Um, turns out he's a great individual contributor, but the minute we sat, we hired two coders, all he did was rewrite their work. <laughs> like right. he, he didn't yeah. really manage and lead a team, right? Or whatever. So, so, you know, you have those false starts. And so a lot of it is we want people to kind of go through those. So how do you do that, right? So if I'm an architect, I don't know a lot of technology people, right? That I have this idea, I've done this, this, this process you asked me to do. I know it's a great idea. I have confirmation that it's a great idea. Now I need somebody to help me build that on my team. How do I find the right person to do that with me? Yeah, so great places to hunt, hackathons, pitch competition. I mean, there's, there's so many like, I'm kind of, for the longest time I was very anti about the social aspect of startups. I was just like, instead of going to a party, go write some code. What are you doing? Like, what are you doing here? Um, and there's so many opportunities. There's always a hackathon. There's always events. Yep. There's always something going on. So get involved. Get involved get in, it, in right? the industry. Go go and, where the tech people hang out. Right. And get involved. I mean, and, and I think it's a, it's fantastic too. Like I think people go, I've been an architect for 20 years. What do I do? Hang out with these kids? Like what's going on? Like, yes. And by the way, in your process and your journey of hunting for talent and all of that, you will learn so much that you will take back to your day job. Right. Right. You learn so much. Yeah. Because you'll, you'll experience new things. You'll meet new people. They'll teach you things. You can teach them things. Um, and it's, it's the common theme of everything that you're talking about right from the beginning of our conversation is about the people, right? It's not as much about the idea. Yes, you have to have a great idea. You have to confirm that that great idea is an idea that can be scaled. But it goes back to the founders and their, how much are they really willing to give up to pursue this idea? And how is the chemistry of the team that they've built and that there is a team, right? Mm -hmm. It can't be one person with an idea. It has to be a team that is ready to execute on that idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's also a, a thing that people may or may not realize. So one of the things is we invest globally because we're very focused on a market. We can't focus on a market and only invest in Atlanta or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, people really think that they have original ideas. And they're right. solving original problems. What they don't know is I see 50 pitch decks a week just through our website, just through our incubator program and everything. I talk to 10 startups a week, every week. Um, there's a pattern. You start to see the same stuff, right? And a lot of times from our perspective, it's like, okay, here's three, three people, three groups trying to solve the same problem. That's what you're competing with. Yeah. Right. How do these people stand up? And so much of it is judgment. You know, tell me about like your track record. And people are like, well, I've never done a startup. So I don't have a track record. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Where'd you go to college? Tell me about your career. How'd you move up? What did you like about your career when you were? Um, and one of the things that people really, really struggle with, I would say in our industry, is selling in a different way. As an architect, you're selling your portfolio and your experience and you and your team. It's buy, you know, it's it's the 254s and 255s, right? Yeah. Um, that's that's the product, right? Um, which is very different than selling a, an idea or a software product or a hardware product that has nothing to do with about you. 
about defining the value prop, understanding the selling process, um, and that it is a process. Um, and that is very hard for a lot of people in our industry. Is that an opportunity to find another co-founder that sometimes. has that has that strength that understands yeah. that process? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. Um, and I think that's where you. Hit, and I think you know part of um, these journeys, right? It's 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 a lot of self-discovery. You know, I, I mean, I wrote this BIM book years ago, um, but you know, a few years ago, I wrote a, a book called "What You Know About Startups Is Wrong," and it's so funny because people see it, they go buy it, right? And they think it's like a, a, a handbook on how to do a startup. But they don't realize it's actually me trying to talk you out of being a startup. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it's really about, do you understand the sacrifice, right? And a lot of it's my own story, right? There's a reason I went through a divorce. Mostly because I'm traveling all the time and my startup was my focus, right? It was hard to focus on anything else. Um, I almost died on a plane, like because of stress and became diabetic. Like there's all these things that I really, when I wrote that book was understand like this journey is not for the faint of heart. And, um, and uh, the running joke is like, Hey, if you're not gonna read my book, have your significant other read, read my book. <laughs> yeah. Cause <laughs> like, they'll, they'll they convince need you to not know, to do it. Yeah. Right. They need to know. I mean, and you know, a lot of it's like, it's just knowing what you're signing up for. Right. It's, it's all it is. And, and being in, you know, you know, being in shape, right. Being in shape to take this next journey. You know, you don't just show up to a marathon as just training. And so I think people get really, they get a lot of energy around the idea and they just want to go do it. Right. And then they, then they say things like, well, if I don't move, someone else is going to do it. I'm like, that's, that's interesting. I don't know that I want to invest in something that's so easy for someone else to do. Right. So, right. There's a little bit of um, these conversations that become a little bit challenging for people. What if they make it through all those obstacles? They've cleared all those hurdles yeah. that you've given them. They have the team, they have the idea, they're ready to roll. What's next? Then, you know, basically it's me and my team evaluate the opportunity against all the other opportunities. We move quickly because uh, if you look at our team, we don't really have analysts. Like every startup, just about every startup we meet, um, either myself or Matt Ullman, our CTO, or the first meeting. I tell them, like, I have people that help me with my work, but that is not your job to meet them. Like, yep. I don't want my team spending time. So most VCs, you go to an analyst, and an analyst has three right. meetings with you. Go through layers of approval. Right. We don't believe in that. And I think it's partly because we're entrepreneurs. We're like that. We hated that system when we were trying to build companies, and why would we implement the same system? Yeah. And it expedites the process, right? You don't have to go through all the, on both sides, right? You can evaluate more companies quicker and, yep. and say, these are the ones that are interesting. These are the ones that are not. Um, and same thing for the, for the entrepreneur to be oh, able to get a quick answer. Absolutely. Over half the, so, you know, I told you I do these 10, 10 meetings a week. Um, they're 30 minute calls, more than half of them ended in seven minutes. I'm just like, Hey, I'm going to free up some time for you because this is not a fit and you're probably not venture fundable and go back to the drawing board and you know, let me know when you come up with right. something different. Right. And, and just some because... people get offended by that. They get it like, well, I booked 30 minutes. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you want to talk about music? Like, what do you like? What? Right. <laughs> there's nothing else to talk about here. Yeah. 
Yeah, and just because it's not venture fundable doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad idea or even a bad business. It's just not venture fundable. It's just not something that is interesting to a VC whose business is to grow big companies. Right, and we've seen this a lot, right? BIM, BIM services companies, drone services companies, you know, and I tell people like, well, did you did you invent the drone or are you, you know, I just buy them <laughs> off the shelf. I'm like, like my 19 year old buys them off the shelf. Like, you know, like, Help yeah. me understand like what is, and it's like, it's not a bad business, right? It just means it's just not, you know, our expectations of, you know, you know, we're trying to get anywhere from 10 to a hundred X our money back. Because remember, it's not about the hundred X, right? I only get 20% of it. Right. That's what I care about. And 20% is not as much as you would think, right? A 10 X, 20% of, you know, a million dollars turns into 11 it's not bad, but I had to wait three years to get it. And since then I had to like cover my payroll. <laughs> you know, it's just the bar tends to be higher with venture. Yeah. Yeah. So how many companies does Shadow back? How many do you have currently on your portfolio? Uh, we've got about approximately. Uh, actually look at the, um at about twenty. And and um what's the, what's a typical um life of one of your investments is it is because part of the vc process is exit right is that mm -hmm. you need to get paid and that's yep. either somebody buys the company or it goes public right those are the two yep. options so what's yeah, so the, the, go ahead so that leads into a, a really good you know i always tell entrepreneurs like you need to know our business if you want to sell us it's a really good idea for you to know how we operate right so what we do is we raise capital from investors right like we just um closed out our last fund last year. So we'll be raising a new fund soon, but we raise a chunk of money from investors. And then that fund, which is like a, an LLC, right? It's basically an LLP um, lives for 10 years. So it's a 10 year cycle of that bucket of money. Interesting. All right. So it's a limited time. They, so yeah. they have got it. So the first three years are your, seed years or deployment years. So we only deploy money really for the first three years. Then that middle tier is managing the portfolio. And, and we might leave some money just in case, right? Oh, it took, you know, nobody ever hits their goals, right? It's just too early, right? It's, it's nothing negative. It's just how it is, right? Yeah. So many unknowns, so many variables. So we keep a little bit of money there. Like we have to come in and like help them out a little bit. If we still right. believe yeah, it just took longer, right? We'll put a little bit more money in. Um, so it's like three years of deployment um, and kind of like three years of you start to see harvest, you know, and then after that, it's like, well, we need to leave a little bit of buffer for the things that take a little bit longer. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're looking, if you think about it in, in a 10 year fund, like to say, let's, let's make up numbers, right. A $10 million fund. I need one of those companies to return the entire fund, just one investment should retire and turn the entire fund. And then the rest of it is like extra money, right? Right. So our, our goals tend to be like that 10 million needs to turn into a hundred, right? Is that kind of thing. And if you look at most venture firms, they always have one company, right? They have like, oh, we're investors in Google. You know, it's rare. Sequoia's been right. fantastic, but a lot of them, it's like one company or two companies and the rest of them went to zero. Yeah, and that's typical, right? That's part mm -hmm. of the business. Is, is that's why the the bet has to be so big, because if you're investing in twenty companies, maybe two of them are going to yeah. pay back, and the rest of yeah. them are, are either going. To, you, go ahead. 
Yeah, and I'm sorry. If, if you really want to understand this stuff, right, I, I really try to explain doctors like, you know, you need to read, there's certain books you need to read, right? There's a new book out that I love from Tony Fidel, who was the inventor of the iPhone and founder of Nest called Build. It's probably the best book I've read in 10 years. It's that good. Uh, it's just, he does such a great job. And it's you just like, you can feel him in it, right? Yeah. Like the, the angst of building a product, whether it was the iPhone or whether it was Nest. Um, so there's certain books like that as an entrepreneur you should be reading. Um, but also like knowing our business. So Venture Deals is a really good book to understand the vocabulary. Like what's a term sheet? What's a convertible note? What's a price round? Like all of our language. Like you have to be prepared to speak our language. Right. Right. And then um, there's another book that came out called Power Law. And so Power Law is the fundamentals of how VC operates, which is what you were talking about, like one out of 10, right? Yeah. And so that's how Power Law works. You know, it's all about like there's there's one or two deals that, that make your to make all the money and the rest of them go to zero. Um, so you're trying to bet that way. Yeah. Um, for us, because we play seed stage and we have, you know, over 160 investors, mostly from industry, there's a lot of companies we invest in that maybe have like a hundred thousand in revenue. And within three months, we get them up to a million in revenue because all of our investors become customers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that, so that's, and the that, that's part of the, part of the business as well is that when a VC invests that they're bringing their experience and their contacts and their network. And so it's not just money that's being invested. It's time and effort and connections that come along with it as well. Yeah. We, we just invested in a company um, and the founder the other day was like, so many VCs talk about creating value. You guys are ridiculous. <laughs> you, I mean, I think within a week, they met with 10 multi-billion dollar companies like at the CEO level about their product. Yeah. And they were like, what do you guys eat? Because, and I'm like, look, <laughs> as a seed investor, we have to be willing to do the work and we have to both have the, the um, attitude to show up and do the work. We also have to have the aptitude, right? And there's a reason why these CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies respond because they're like, oh, these guys know what they're doing. It's also interesting that we're now starting to see what we call generalist VCs. They know nothing about our industry starting to follow us around because right. they know like you guys know what's going on. And so therefore we're going to follow you around because I think that there's one thing that's very unique about our industry that people either ignore or don't understand. You know, I think I agree that I think there's some people that absolutely understand it. They just choose to ignore it. We are a project based. So when startups talk about, ARR, annual recurring revenue, and yep. MRR, monthly recurring revenue. In our industry, it's generally a lie. It's generally a lie. As a startup, right? Autodesk can hit you up with annual recurring revenue, and you don't really have a choice because they kind of suck that way. They'll just like <laughs> force you, right? Um, but generally speaking, you know, everybody wants to take us and think our industry is like, manufacturing right you design and you build it and we're like a factory and my thesis is more like we're like more like the movie industry we all show up on a project maybe yeah. we've worked together maybe we haven't we're starting to feel each other out sometimes it feels like we've never made a movie ever right right yep. <laughs> um and we feel each other out and then we leave 
And so a lot of, for a lot of startups, they're really selling a project. That's why like every pitch deck we see in like construction tech, every pitch deck has Turner and scans on, scans on it. Well, why? Cause they did one project right. <laughs> for Turner somewhere, right? They did one project with Gensler. It doesn't mean that Gensler has adopted their product globally and it's sitting on the desktop of every architect, right? And so what's interesting is some of the generalist VCs fall for that. They see the logos, they don't know what's going right. on. And they're like, yep. oh, it's recurring. And so they chart this hockey stick and then they're wrong. Yeah. Um, so we think, we believe in overcapitalizing our companies at the seed stage because we just think it takes longer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this this industry also is traditionally behind the rest of the world, right? In terms of adoption and technology. Yeah. So so you're you know somebody who doesn't understand the industry could look at where we are and think, oh, they're you know what a great opportunity. But in fact, yeah. they don't recognize that this industry takes a long time to adopt new ideas and new yeah. new ways of doing things, and so um, that's part of the equation, right? Right. And, and there's a reason for that. There's a, you know, none of this stuff that like people want to talk about culture and all that. Like, okay. You know, we all have been invaded by technology, right? We're using tech. Like, it's not like yep. we're averse to technology. Right. Once again, it's motives, right? I was talking to the CFO of a very large public AEC firm. There is zero benefit to being more efficient when you bill by the hour. Your law, your lawyer, there's no benefit to them to be efficient. Right. And in our world, there is really no benefit to be efficient. Um, and, and I think part of that has been, I mean, I saw it with BIM adoption. So we have to spend all this money on software and train our people. To, in, in early, you know, early days of BIM, architecture firms were billing customers for it. Like they used to bill for like CAD services back yep, in the day. Right. They started billing for BIM and that lasted like maybe six months. Like and owners were like, what, what is like? I'm paying you to be more efficient. <laughs> I'm, I'm paying you to do a better job. And, um, and, and I think that's one of those things that a lot of industries struggle with. But it's, I think also part of the culture of our industry is having a lot of autonomy, right? It's my project. I'm the project right. manager. And what that does, I've seen it with contractors. It's actually really funny contractors, the, the C-suite, the CIO will say, we're going with this software. And everybody at a project level is suspicious. You would think like, oh, well, corporate already vetted it. It's already been figured out. And great, I don't have to worry about it. They're suspicious. They're like, why did we pick that software? Yeah. Is he, out, is he out hunting with the founder? Like, what did he get out of it? Like, I don't think it's that. You know? And so what happens is there's this autonomy that then creates fragmentation because we want you to run, you know, the Corporate says, well, no, you know, it's your own business. It's your own project. You do what you need to make it happen. Yeah. Um, which is good and bad, right? What's good is a startup can have early customer adoption because you only have to convince a project manager. Then it's like, then the, you know, then it's hard, right? Because you're selling project after project. Yeah. Um, one of our companies, Green Badger, they've been around for a minute and they, they finally have gotten there, right? Now their customers are saying, hey, I, um, I did a survey. 80% of our projects are using our software. I'm like, yeah. Um, can we get an enterprise deal? <laughs> can we get a better price? <laughs> right. Which is usually the driver, right? Can I get a better price? Right. He's like, yeah, sure. If you want to sign up for a three-year deal and blah, 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 happy to give you a better price. 
show me some yeah. commitment. I'll give you a better deal. So what does the, and I know we're, we're running up against our time here. Actually, we're probably over our time. Um, but, but what does the future look like? What does the future look like for the industry? And what does the future look like for shadow? Um, that's a great question. I, I really believe this industry, the way we're going to keep talent in this industry is the entrepreneurialism and innovation. So I really think I'm calling for the destruction of large firms. I don't think they make sense, right? Interesting. I can you're outsource talking to it. a lot of people who are like, yay. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's real. I mean, you know, you can do business with Gensler, but at the end of the day, you're going to get assigned a person and a team right. in a local office. And what did I get for the overhead of the brand? Right. You know, nothing against Gensler. I mean, I'm sure they do fine work. Right. And I think the the to go start an architectural firm tomorrow, you can outsource your accounting. Don't need an accounting department. There's software for that. Yep. Um, maybe don't even need marketing help. You can probably like use tools out there for marketing yourself and CRMs and all this stuff. So you can start the the barrier to entry to starting an, a firm is so low these days, right? Customer and knowledge. And if you're a customer, why do I want to work with a big firm where I'm just a number? I'd rather work with someone where like I can text, you know, the, the architect, right? I can text the team. And so I think where you see not just architecture, but a lot of industries is what is the benefit of the large firm? What am I getting? What is the value? Because I know I'm paying a premium. Is that really what I want? And I think technology and flexibility, and especially now, like, you know, post-pandemic, do you even need an office? Right, right. That's been proven. I mean, cut the cut the rent, cut the accounting people, cut the HR, cut all those people, right? Yep. And it's an architect having a direct conversation with an owner um, and getting things done, right? And creating value. Um, and so I think I think that's the future. I think for us, you know, we're going to continue to raise money and grow. Um, we do an annual event. It's our sixth year. The last two years we did it remotely at shadowsummit.co. Um, this year we're doing it in person in Nashville, North Carolina. And it's really become one of these great events for people to, to not just meet our startups, but learn about technology. Because what, what we learned is AIA doesn't care about technology. Right. AGC doesn't care about like none of them care about technology. It's um, you know, it's it's one panel amongst four days. And if you want to learn about AI for real, like you come to our conference like that. And we also do a good job of bringing people from other industries. Um, when is that? When is the summit? Uh, October 5th through 7th. Okay. We'll have, we'll have links to all of this stuff, all of the books you mentioned, Shadow Summit and all of that. We'll have yeah. links to, to all of that on the show notes. Yeah. So I think for us, you know, I think our view is we're going to kind of continue to focus on early stage. We think that's where we have the most value. We're going to continue to add more and more strategic investors um, you know, we're, we're in the middle of raising our next fund. And I mean, I was talking to my team this morning. I was like, can you imagine the people that are like chasing us? To, like, we never thought like, we never like, we're just like, Oh, KP's doing this thing. And, you know, we're all going to go do this thing, you know? And then, you know, the inbound calls and then call, people wanting to meet with us. We've just been absolutely blown away. I mean, just super grateful that, you know, I think the beginning, like, I think what we do is super important and fantastic. I'm glad some other people do too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially seeing that it, it is in industry, right? Because the thing that you said earlier is something that I've agreed with for a long time, that if that if the industry doesn't adopt the technology and the innovation and become the leaders of that technology and innovation, 
we get replaced by that technology and innovation. Yeah. Right? Architecture could literally go away by our competitors and our and technology that's that's currently developed and is going to be developed in the future. Yeah, and and I do think there's a fundamental thing. I, I mean, most times I kick off every like when I do talks, we're the last industry that is creating a product that shapes the future of humanity. Exactly, and we get treated like shit. <laughs> right, and I have a real problem with that. And I think part of it is getting caught up in the minutia of how we do work and billing hours and SDs and DDs and CDs and specs, like all that stuff is just the minutia of it all. But at the end of the day, we're literally shaping the planet. And we're the only, look, we throw away our iPhones every three years. We can talk about how innovative Apple is. They can't build a product that lasts them more, three, more than three years. Right. <laughs> we, have to, we have to deliver a product that's going to last for 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years. Right. And still be useful, still have utility, still have a user experience. Yet we kind of diminish our own role in society. And I think, you know, and it gets caught up in permitting. Like just all these like really things that are a waste of our brain power, right? Some printing out five sets of drawings and taking them down to the county. Like, oh my God, like online AI, get everybody out of the way. Like, let me go <laughs> right. innovate and be creative and think about the future and not be worried about a wet seal and five sets and the fire marshal. Right. Like, do we really need to do? That? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, and that, that's coming, right. Whether we like it or not, that, that technology's coming and, yeah. uh, and it is, it is the thing that can make sure that we are the leaders, right. That we do have the, the, the influence and the impact on the world that we want to have. Um, I, I agree. And I think the challenge is like, I feel like we have a seat at the table, but we don't show up because we're too busy redlining drawings. Right. <laughs> like, right. Like we're back in the office. Like there's a seat at the table, right? And it's just like, no, we're too busy doing work to 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 exert our influence. So yeah. what happens instead? The developers exert their influence. Right. It's these other people. And you know, look, there's some fantastic developers out there. Some of our LPs are just fantastic developers, but we know that there's a lot of folks that aren't that fantastic. And you know, they take our seat at the table because we're too busy doing all their work for them. Right, right. Yeah, inspiring, KP. Um, I, this has been a really interesting conversation for me, and, and I know that there are thousands out there who are also just so excited about what you just shared with them. Um, it, I think there's probably also a bunch of people who are disappointed because they thought they had some ideas that they're going through the checkbox, and they're like, well, maybe not. Maybe it is yeah. uh, just just an idea that's going to help me not not millions more. Yeah. I think, look, patience and pragmatism uh, are characteristics that for some reason we've all forgotten, but it's in, it's ingrained in our industry and somehow someone will talk you out of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. well, the guy at Twitter just, I'm like, no, that's Twitter. Like you're not, they're not right. doing anything important. Yeah. Yeah. So it's super inspiring. Thank you, uh, KP. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you the question that I ask everybody and, and I'm really interested in your, your answer for this question. Uh, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today, right now, to build a better business? For um, I really think it is truly understanding their customers' needs. Like, what is the end game? It's not about how many square feet and how much usage and facades and all that. Like, what is the vision of this project, and what is the 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 impact financially and to society? 
and really framing it as that, like, what is this experience that I'm creating? And just really trying to hold that up front, you know, and I think that solves everything else. And I feel like if we can be better storytellers and vision keepers, yeah, that's, that's the future. His name is KP Reddy. And the website to learn more about Shadow is shadow.vc, shadow.vc. Uh, go check it out. If, if somebody does have an idea and they've mm -hmm. gone through that checklist that you gave us and they think it is something that Shadow might be interested in, should they, is, there just a, is there a process to, to connect with you? You literally go to our website, right? My first cup of coffee is reviewing, personally reviewing everybody that submits to the website. We just funded a company based out of India and the founder, we had our first like post-investment call. And he said, I never thought I could like submit my information <laughs> on a website and get several million dollars. Yeah. And I'm like, we don't want to waste your time. Like we're, 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 we're engineers, right? So very process oriented. So it's funny. A lot of people are like, oh, do I need some backdoor? No, go to the website. You're, you'll right. have better success in the website. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I wanted you to have you here on this episode because, um, you know, you also don't want to waste your time and you don't want to waste their time, right? If, if it is truly an idea that could be venture backed, go to shadow.vc and yeah. go submit it. And Absolutely. because you may have a couple million dollars next week. <laughs> and there's no, and by the way, there's no such thing as too early. We have an incubator program. Um, we just funded a company called jet build, which is construction management software. We incubated him for two years. He kept his day job for two years and did this on the side with us. And I said, Dude, I'm wiring you five. I'm wiring you half a million dollars. Go quit your day job. Go tell your boss. Give us two it's weeks. Time. Yeah. So, I mean, we're very creative that way. So there's no such thing as too early. But I mean, yeah. that's why we have our incubator as well. All right. Very cool. Shadow.vc. We'll have links to all of the uh, the links and the books and all of that. Uh, KP, I appreciate you for spending all this time. This has been a long episode, and I appreciate you coming by and and sharing your knowledge here. But also, in in addition, to just coming by the podcast here. Thank you for doing what you're doing because it is a, it's a very, very important role that you're playing in the industry. Um, there's not many of you doing what you're doing in this specific industry. Um, and it's very important to have a place where architects and engineers and construction pros can go uh, to create those products, right? To, to you know, take those ideas and that innovation that you might have in your mind and, and go build it. And so I appreciate you for being there um, and for coming by here today at Entree Architect Podcast. Oh, thank you so much. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, go write a review. I would love to know what you think of this podcast and it helps other architects find us. So go do five-star rating if you like it, share, write a review, I'd love it, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that's how we've grown. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands of architects throughout the world just like you. Thank you to our sponsors, RCAT and FreshBooks for their support of this episode. I ask you to support them because they support us. And if they're supporting us, they're supporting you. So go support them. Got it? Go support our sponsors. Links to our sponsors. So you can click on those links and go right to them. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we shared today are available at the show notes for this episode at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. All the shows are there, entrearchitect.com slash podcast. 
Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows. I think there are 11 of them there now. Go there, gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And I hope you're going to join us in Austin, November 1st through November 3rd, 2022. Those are the dates for the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting, our first ever live and in-person conference for you, the small firm architect community. Visit entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more. That's entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting, and I will see you in Austin in November. Don't miss this. This is going to be great. entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting. It's a conference for you, small firm architects. Thank you for listening today to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. 
there's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.